0: If you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 22. There are 1,182 chapters in the Bible, and I want you to turn to the 1,182nd chapter in the Bible. The very last one. The very last chapter in the Bible. We'll begin reading with verse number 1. John says, Then the angel showed me the ri- the river... Of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets and all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong, let him who is vile continue to be vile, let him who does right continue to do right, and let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, "Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with god's people a man by the name of john's in prison on the island of patmos just at the place where the aegean sea kisses the mediterranean sea he's in prison there because he is a christian because he is a vocal christian because he's a christian who shares his faith Uh, it's not a private faith it's it's not only a private faith but it's also a public faith That doesn't mean that it's for show, but it is a faith that needs to be expressed, a faith that needs to be uh, shared. John is in prison because of that. And so, uh, potentially, are the folks to whom he is writing, they are suffering religious persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. They are members of seven churches in what is uh, today Turkey, then it was Asia Minor. And those seven churches are outlined in chapter 1 and again in chapters 2 and 3. They're asking a series of questions. Why is this happening to us? And John says to them, It's happening to you because every crisis in your life as a Christian is connected to your faith. Crises either test the quality of your faith or they strengthen the quality of your faith. And so, why is it happening? Because of your faith. What is about to happen to us? And where is God in this crisis? Well, to the, to answer the question, where is God? John says in chapter 1, he, the Lord is walking in your midst. He is with you, even though you think that He's not. In chapter 4, John is carried up into heaven and he sees a vision of heaven. And the first thing he sees in that vision is God sitting on the throne. It's not the Roman Empire. It's not the Roman Emperor. It's not Wall Street. It's not Washington. It's, it's not... Uh, the struggles that, are, that, that plague us from time to time, or the crises we experience or endure from time to time, God is on the throne. And in his right hand, he held a book. We later know that that book is the future, contain the future of the people John is writing to. And basically, uh, in this vision, John is being shown that, that not only is God on the throne, but he holds our future in his hands. That's where God is, and that's what God is doing. Well, what's about to happen to us? Well, John says, beginning with chapter 6, that things are going to get worse for you. When you're in a crisis, more often than not, things get worse before they get better. But John says, but even though things will get worse before they get better, they will get better. There was a series of seven seals in chapters 6, 7, and 8. There is a series of seven trumpets, chapters 9, 10, and 11, there is a series of seven bowls of wrath, chapters 15, 16, 17, and 18. There are chapters, even chapter 20, where there's a millennium. When you study the chapter that includes the thousand years, you'll notice that at the end of it, Satan is, is up, up through up until the end of it, he is bound. He's not totally bound, but he's bound enough that he can't do just anything he wants, but then at the end of it, toward the end, he's released. He's released, so things get worse. And then the Lord comes, and things are better. And so throughout chapters 6 through 20, what he's saying over and over and over to us is that when you're in a crisis, things will get worse before they get better, most of the time. But they will get better. And the Lord will intervene in your life. In chapters 2 and 3, John tells me, he says, But before you worry about your future, there's some internal issues you need to deal with. Issues like a loss of passion. Issues like an unwillingness to see your crisis as an opportunity as opposed to a tragedy, as a, a time for, for strength rather than a time for calamity. And there are several different internal issues that John deals with with these churches in chapters 2 and 3. Certainly, certainly somebody's going to ask, well... John you say things are going to get better but we had some folks who died we've had, we've had some folks who were executed by the roman empire we've had some there have been some christians in the last century which was uh the the 20th century was the uh you had the most people to die for their faith of any previous christian century in the 20th century For them, it seems that earthly life did not get better. In fact, earthly life didn't get better. But John comes back in chapters 21 and 22 and he says, yes, there are some who are going to die, but but don't underestimate this one reality, that those who die and go on to heaven, they've reaped a better reward than anybody else. Because the worst experience in heaven is greater than the best experience on earth. Earth. And he talks about heaven in chapters 21 and 22. In chapter 22, there are three things that I especially want us to note that heaven reveals to us, that John was shown about heaven. The first thing that I want you to see from these verses is that earth is a training ground for heaven. Earth is a training ground for heaven. Heaven. John starts talking about uh, heaven. He sees a picture of heaven. There is a river that's flowing from uh, God the Father and God the Son. And that river is flowing from them. And, and John says that, that river is, is, it, it has water that is clear as crystal. Now picture that. A river that is so crystal clear that you can stand by the side of it and you can see all the way to the bottom, even at its deepest points. He says there is a river flowing from God out of heaven and its waters are crystal clear. And he says there is the tree of life. Now, you know, the last time we saw the tree of life was at the first part of the Bible. Here we are in the 1,182nd chapter of the Bible. The last time we see the tree of life is in Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter of the Bible. And in that chapter, humankind lost access to the tree of life. God expelled us because of our sin away from the tree of life. But in Revelation 22, that access is restored. But did you notice about that tree? It's not just sitting on one side of the tree of uh, one side of the river of life, that crystals, that crystal river. It's on both sides. It's a tree that is planted and established on both sides of the river of life. And it gives forth fruit, not just one kind or two kinds or three, kinds, but 12 types of fruit. Now, we've already seen that 12 is a very special number in the book of Revelation. It symbolizes uh, the people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples or apostles that Jesus chose, the 24 elders, a multiple of 12 around God's throne. Uh, At one point, John said he saw in heaven uh, a multitude that numbered 144,000. That's not a literal number. That's that's an exponential uh, multiple of 12. It represents all of the people of God. And here is this tree of life. It is firmly planted and rooted on both sides of the river of life. And it produces 12 types of fruit. And it produces this fruit every single month of the year. It's interesting, in heaven, if this is to be taken literally, in heaven, we lose the seasons. We lose winter, spring, summer, and fall. But what we don't lose is an eternal summer of harvest all 12 months all 12 months the tree of life is producing the 12 different fruits of life and not only is it producing fruits year round in heaven but the leaves of it have medicinal qualities, so that the whole curse that he's here on earth is healed now what's that got to do with earth being a training ground for heaven listen ladies and gentlemen In every person in this room, no matter how happy you might be at any given point in your life, there will be a time when you look around in your own life and in our world and say, things are not exactly right here. And the fact that things are not exactly right here, creates within us a hunger for a place where everything is right. The Bible attests to this. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, God has planted into the hearts of human beings eternity. He has planted eternity in our hearts. There's something in us that longs for something that's not temporary anymore. Everything here is temporary. It really is. Matt has an older sister. She's been expecting a baby. There were some complications. She had that baby this week. The baby lived two hours. Two hours. They had the memorial service up in West Virginia yesterday afternoon. This week I was called by the funeral home to speak at the funerals of three different uh, people whose pastors were either out of town or they didn't have a pastor, and all three of those people were in their mid to upper 80s. Listen, it doesn't matter if you live two hours or if you live 87 years, life is temporary. There's never been a person, there's never been a person who lived eternally here on earth. Nobody. Everything here is temporary. Yesterday I was out walking and I just, as I walk, I just adore God's creation. I love the leaves on the trees. I passed by an old, an old tree and I, and I looked up in the top of that tree one day this week. There was a quartet of woodpeckers, long neck woodpeckers, all knocking on the top of that tree. Almost like they were competing for the opportunity to be the first one to get a hole in that tree. I love that. But the tree was dead. It once lived, but now it's dead. Every year around spring we see blossoms come out and we see foliage start to peek out from around the the twigs and the barks of trees and flowers. And right now they're fully flourishing. I looked out at uh, uh, crepe myrtles and they're flourishing this year like no other year recently. But come October, those leaves will start falling. And they'll be dying. Even the trees that are evergreen that have needles year-round, they will at some point drop needles to the ground and they will not remain green, they they turn brown, deathful brown. Everything here on earth is temporary, it's temporal. And and that temporariness about life uh, here on earth causes us to cry out for something that is eternal. Surely, this life is not all that there is. Surely, surely, Even the Apostle Paul said, he says, if in this life only we have a hope in Christ, we're of all people to be pitied. We're of all men most miserable. There has to be something more than what we have here. Earth is a training ground. Why do we have crises here in this life? I don't don't have the full answer to that. I don't have a satisfactory answer to, to people who are honestly looking at their own crises. I really don't. But one thing I do know is that every crisis that I experience in this life makes me hunger for, for the perfectness of heaven all the more. The struggles of this life, whether it's over the loss of a loved one or a disease that's, that's terminal or a job that's lost or, or a paycheck that's cut in half or whatever the problem may be. Every crisis you and I go through makes us hungrier for heaven The place where there is no disease, there will be no death, there will not be the need for a job, let alone a paycheck. There will not be the pain, there will not be the tears, there will not be any of the things that destroy life in this life. Earth is a training ground for heaven. The second thing that I believe that this chapter tells us is that the reality of heaven calls for a response from earth. The fact that heaven is real, the fact that there is this place where things are going to be righted, everything that's evil down here will be done away with and everything that's up there will be righted. All the injustices of this world will be be righted in that world. But the fact that there is such a world requires a response on our part here. The bulk of this chapter deals... With the response of different individuals to the reality of heaven. If you look, in verse 8, John says, And when I heard. When I had heard and seen them, all the things in heaven, he says, I fell down to worship. Now, that's a good response. But John messed up in his response after that. He says, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing these things to me. And the angel said to me, do not do it. I'm just a fellow servant with you. I'm a fellow servant with you and the brothers and sisters and the prophets. Worship God. You see, the fact that there is a heaven requires a response on earth. First, it requires a response on the part of those of us who are Christians, those of us who know the Lord as our Savior. And the first part of our response ought to be this, a God word worship. I'm troubled with with some of the things that I see happening in American, in particular in American Christianity. I see a lot of people preacher worshiping. I see a lot of people church leader worshiping. I see a lot of people in America personality worshiping. And Let me tell you, your worship is only as good as the object of that worship. And there is no preacher. I don't care if it's Billy Graham or Rick Warren or whoever you might want to pick out. I don't care if it's some Hollywood star who claims to be a Christian. There is no personality here on earth worth worshiping. Nobody John said, boy, this angel who's been showing me all these things is worthy of worship. And he bowed down and he started to worship this angel. And the angel said, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Worship God. Let your worship be Godward. A second response on the part of Christians is gospel witness. Verse 10. Verse 10. then he told me, do not seal up the words of this book because the time is near. Do not seal up the words of this book. You have a testimony. If you have been saved, if there's been a time in your life when you invited Christ into your life, you have a testimony. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, are you a public servant of the Lord Jesus Christ or are you in the secret service? Do people around you know that you know the Lord or is it something privately held? Are you a closet Christian? He says, do not seal up the words of this prophecy because the time is near share christ what is what should our response be Godward worship gospel witness what does gospel mean it means good news good news witnessing and third good works verse 11 he says let him who does wrong continue to do wrong let him who is vile continue to be vile but let him who does right continue to do right and let him who is holy continue to be holy You see, you will do what you are. You will do what you are. If you are vile, you'll do things that are vile. If you are ungodly, you'll do things that are ungodly. But he says, to those who are holy, keep doing what is holy. To those who are right with God, keep doing that which is right with God. Good works ought to be our response. Listen, the reality of heaven requires a response from God's people. Godward worship, gospel witness, good works. But then it also requires, it requires a response from the lost. Verse number 14. He says, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right of the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Blessed are those who wash their robes. That's a symbolic reference to those who have Receive Christ as Savior. That's how you wash your robes. You and I can't do it in and of ourselves. We must depend on Christ, our relationship with Christ, to wash us and make us whole. Verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. There's an invitation there. Do you see that? And whoever wishes, let him come take the free gift of the water of life, but let me tell you something, folks. And I'm not talking about uh, I'm not talking about here Christians being arrogant witnesses. We must be humble witnesses to those we love and all those around us concerning uh, the importance of a relationship with Christ. We must be willing to tell people in a, in humility the the Wonder and the benefits and the blessings and the glory of a relationship with Christ. Back in 2005, in May of 2005, Time Magazine published an article entitled The Science of Evacuation. And the article was based on face-to-face interviews with the survivors, with many of the survivors of the 9-11 aircraft crashes into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. It's interesting what the survivors did. Once Once they felt the first crash into the tower that they were in, it's amazing what their response was. Those who made it out alive waited for an average of six minutes before starting to evacuate. Now, six minutes doesn't seem like a long time, but if, if, if the 100-plus uh, story building that you're in has just had uh, a 747 or whatever crash into it, six minutes is a long time. The, the average survivor waited six Minutes. Some lingered as long as half an hour before they decided to leave. What did they do while they waited? The article found out that some of them milled around. Some of them called relatives. About a thousand of them took time to shut down their computers. Seventy percent of the survivors spoke with other people before trying to to leave. Less than half of the survivors knew that there were three different massive stairwells to navigate in order to get out of the building. One investigator said, I found the lack of preparedness shocking. There was one particular woman, her name was Elia. Elia was on the 73rd floor and when she she heard a booming explosion and she said the tower that she was in, she's on the 73rd floor, she said it rocked toward the south as though it was about to topple over and she said, I felt it rock. You'd think that her first impulse would be immediately get out of the building, but it wasn't. She said, I stayed put. I looked around and she said, I kept waiting for somebody to say, this is all in your mind. Don't worry about it. Not a big deal. Not a big deal. Just stay put. She said, that's, that's what I was waiting for somebody to say. And she said, it happened that there was another colleague of mine in the same building who had a whole different response. And the response of that colleague was, we need to get out of the building. And she said, it was because I heeded that colleague's response to get out of the building that she said, I believe that I'm alive to this day. And and in 2005, when they interviewed her four years after 2001, after 9-11, she said this, She said, I still think about that command. My question is, what would I have done if the person had said nothing? Well, I will tell you that if those twin towers are an analogy of human life, there are a lot of Christians who have felt the explosion, seen the Tower of Life rock, And they have said absolutely nothing. In fact, most of us are more concerned about shutting down our computers than telling the lost people to get ready and get out. Earth is a training ground for heaven. The realities of heaven call for a response from earth. And number three, the cruelties of earth cry out for a rescuer from heaven. The cruelties of earth cry out for a rescuer from heaven. Verse 12. Jesus says, behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. I will give to everyone according to what is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. That's the, those are the first and last uh, uh, letters of the Greek alphabet. I'm the, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the A to Z. I'm the first and the last. The beginning and the end. Verse 20 says, he who testifies to these things says, and this is Jesus, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace... Of the Lord Jesus, be with God's people. Amen. You see, uh, Jesus says, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In another place in God's Word, it says, I am the author and the finisher of your faith. And here in those last two verses, what happens? The author takes the stage. C.S. Lewis, the great uh, British scholar and Christian said this on one occasion, he says, if you go to the theater to see a play, and you enjoy the play, he says, when when at the conclusion, the author takes the stage, he said, the play is over. One writer said, all the world's a stage. We're in this global drama. But there will come a day, and I don't know when it's going to be. I'm not going to stand up here and pretend that I know when it's going to be. But there will come a day when the author will take the stage. And when he takes the stage, the play is over. The time for decision is before he takes the stage. Randy Alcorn wrote a book entitled Heaven. At one point in that book, he talked about a professional singer whose name was Ruthanna Metzger. She lives up in the Seattle, Washington area. She had been invited to sing at the wedding of a very, very wealthy and, and affluent man in Seattle. And the, the we, she sang at the wedding, but at the wedding reception was at, at a building, the Columbia Center, that is the tallest skyscraper in the northwest at the top of it the the skyscraper has glass walls there is a glass staircase with brass uh uh rails handrails and when you have a wedding reception up there they have a they have a ribbon across the the uh the 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 entrance to that stairwell and the bride and groom come up to the ribbon the ribbon is cut in a very uh, ceremonial uh service, and the bride and groom come down, they're announced, and and as they come down, people are are invited in for the reception. And Ruth Anna Metzger sang at this wedding, and she and her husband were so looking forward to going to the reception atop the Columbia Center, this massive skyscraper. They were excited. They got up there, and they got in line. They waited for the ribbon to be cut, and the bride and groom to, to ceremonially walk down the Staircase. Men were were serving hors d'oeuvres and and lavish beverages in in black tuxes. Ruthanna and her husband, one by one, they they met the maitre d at the door after the bride and groom came down. They said, "May, May we have your name, please? My name's Ruthanna Metzger. This is my husband, Roy. We don't find your name here. It has to be there. I'm the singer for the wedding. Let me double check. Your name is not here. Did you send in an RSVP? There was just a blank stare because she knew that she had not turned it in. The maitre d' turned to some of the servants there working that reception and said, please escort them to the service elevator and out the building. True story, they were, they were escorted to the service elevator down to the first floor and out as they drove in silence going down the road, Ruthanna's husband said to her, What happened to the RSVP? She said, When I received it, I just put it off, I procrastinated, and then after it was too late to turn it in, she said, I figured I'm the singer at the wedding. They'd have to let me in. I read that and I remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. He said, there will be many who say, Lord, Lord. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we feed the hungry in your name? And he says, I will say to them. Depart from me. I never knew you. You see, the reality of heaven necessitates readiness. Are you ready? Do you know Christ? Has there been a time in your life when you know that you've invited Christ into your heart to be your Savior? Are you ready? Is your name on the list? Have you sent in the R S V? John says to his readers he says I know you're hurting I know you're in crisis but he says let me tell you this this crisis is a little blip on the screen compared to all that heaven is don't worry about your crisis but use your crisis to get ready for the main event are you ready let's pray Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you, Lord, that in your word you tell us to get ready. And Lord, I pray that everybody in this building is ready. But I know, Lord, that perhaps some folks are not quite ready because some folks in here have yet to invite Christ into their lives. And Lord, my prayer is that when we stand up to sing... That somebody will come down this aisle to this altar of prayer and say, I want Jesus in my life. Lord, I pray for people who are going through crisis on every pew just about in this building. There's somebody who's going through a very difficult trial. Some of us know about it. Some of us are in crises and trials that nobody knows about because we just, we can't tell anybody, Lord. It's too personal, too Fresh to raw. Lord, help us in our crises, but help us not to let our crises determine our lives. Help us to get ready for heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.